Hello and welcome to Byline Radio with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, a brief and scandalous history of PPE, which was suddenly in huge demand following the COVID outbreak in March 2020, when NHS and care workers started to require protection from patients, colleagues and members of the public who potentially had COVID-19. There's a new report by the National Audit Office, which we'll explore shortly. But Byline Times has led the way in exposing the various means by which the provision of this vital healthcare equipment has been mishandled, whether through paying massively inflated prices, allowing government cronies to get their hands on millions of pounds of taxpayers' cash through a VIP lane, or buying PPE that simply doesn't work. Nafiz Ahmed at Byline Times wrote some of the earliest stories on this emerging and now long-running scandal, and Sam Bright, the paper's investigations editor, enthusiastically picked up the baton and has run with it ever since. We'll hear from Sam shortly. And we'd welcome your thoughts as well. If you're listening live at Byline Radio, you will need your phone, though. If you're listening on your laptop on your PC, it won't work. You have to listen on your phone in order to take part. In the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, you'll see a microphone icon. Just press that to request access. And if you've got something intelligent to add to the conversation or a question to ask, then we'd welcome you on board. And just to say as well, you might be listening to this on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast. If that is you, obviously you can't take part live, but feel free to drop me an email anytime to goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. And before we get cracking, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast come from the Byline Times. We are funded by ordinary people like you. There's no hedge fund billionaire behind us, no traditional Rupert Murdoch-style proprietor. The good side of that is that it allows us to report without fear or favour. The bad side of it is that we have to ask you for money. However, you do get plenty in return. If you take out a subscription for just £39 a year, you get a brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, edited by Hardeep Matharu. You also get to support Byline Radio, The Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, and our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, when we talk about PPE, we have to acknowledge that the scale of the demand at the start of the pandemic in early 2020 was unprecedented. COVID was a worldwide phenomenon which pushed up the price. The Department of Health and Social Care sometimes had to pay up front for equipment too as well to avoid being gazumped. But that unfortunately opened the door to fraud with some supplies being paid for but not delivered. The National Audit Office estimates that five contracts worth £19 million are still at risk of not being fulfilled. More than half the suppliers given contracts via a VIP fast track lane where firms could be recommended by government officials or MPs had provided unsuitable items. Only 55% of the PPE so far received has been distributed to health and social care settings. So more than half of it only, just over half of it has been distributed, nearly half, is sitting in warehouses, about £8.5 billion worth of equipment. More than a billion pounds worth of PPE has had to be written off for one reason or another. Let's talk now to uh, Sam Bright. How are you doing, Sam? You are right? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Sergio. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> 
as I read through that list, I mean, you realise that, yes, it was difficult for the Department of Health and Social Care, and we shouldn't underestimate how difficult it was at the start of the pandemic, both to source sufficient supplies of PPE and PPE at reasonable prices. But the National Audit Office, it seems to me in its latest report, is saying, despite acknowledging the difficulties that they faced, they've made a right hash of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one of several NAO, NAO reports that we've seen over the past couple of years. And if you take them all together, um, the the story is, is absolutely damning. This latest report basically covers the management, the financial management of the contracts, how much was spent, as you say, um, what proportion of equipment's being delivered. And on that front, it's it's staggering. I mean, you've repeated some of the stats. Um, we found out as well, in addition to the NAO's report, that of all the equipment that was basically unusable, so it couldn't even be used um, not in clinical settings, of all that equipment, half of it was provided by um, the VIP lane, so firms as you say, that had uh, connections to MPs, ministers and officials. And uh, I think that's the one of the key takeaways of this, of this latest NAO report is how the VIP lane in theory, so, I mean, take it back, strip it bare and ask what the government was trying to do with this. Because, I, you know, although it was a breeding ground for cronyism, I don't think overtly the government wanted to do that. What it thought was that these firms that had connections to ministers, officials, etc., that they'd essentially gone through a vetting process prior to being referred to the department. So if a minister could vouch for a particular firm, then in, in their eyes, they were seen as more reliable. But in actual fact, the VIP line was even less reliable than all other supply routes. As you say, uh, 53% of the firms delivered equipment that um, that's unusable. Um, Fifty, I mean, sorry, thirty-seven percent of all VIP contracts um, might not be value for money at the end of the day. The department's worried about whether thirty-seven percent of the contracts that were signed under the VIP lane might actually deliver value for money, and these were staggering sums of money. And nearly four billion pounds worth of equipment was was um was commissioned through the VIP lane. So it's not we're not talking about trivial sums of money. We're not talking about sort of a subsidiary route that the government used. This was a central plank of its PPE strategy that essentially just that failed and lots of the money fell into the hands of, like you say, people close to the close to the government and the Conservative Party. And I think the Byline Times first reported on this very early on in 2020. It was, I think, our colleague Nafiz Ahmed who ran the first story on a PPE scandal. When did you first become engaged and realise that perhaps sadly, from a journalistic point of view, this would be the gift that kept on giving? Well, that's the, that's the thing. I wasn't actually at Byline Times when um, Nafiz first first started cracking on it. So I, w- I was elsewhere. It was... It was kind of in the in the first months that I joined, though, in, in the summer, in July, that I, I'd obviously seen Nafiz, a couple of Nafiz's stories and a few other people sniffing around it, particularly Jolie Morm at the Good Law Project, and thought, hmm, there's definitely a story here. I mean, it's I've said to you in the past, Adrian, it's got all the hallmarks of a, of a great story. It's got 
you know, obviously the pandemic in there, um, you know, I say great, it's obviously it's, it's devastating and tragic, but, you know, in terms of newsworthiness, it's, uh, you know, it had the pandemic, it had frontline uh, workers, you know, as we all know, they were forced to, to use makeshift equipment to, to deal with patients on the front line, which was absolutely appalling. And then you've got um, firms getting vast amounts of government money um, through emergency procurement mechanisms. So without competition between various different firms, um, you had, you know, cronyism and companies close to the Conservative Party being awarded vast contracts. And I was really baffled at, at, at that time, sort of July, August of 2020, why nobody else was was talking about this scandal. And literally, it was a daily routine of, of sifting through the government's contracts portal, where all the, all the contracts were released, and finding stuff literally on a daily basis. At, at some points during the late summer of 2020, I physically couldn't write all the stories that I was seeing because... There was just such a profusion of um, of cases where I, I was scratching my head. I mean, I've listed some in the in the article that I've done that, I, that I've written today on the NAO report. So we saw a hotel carpeting company, naval design firm, Florida fashion designer, DNA analysis firm, luxury packaging company, a couple of firms listed in the Panama Papers. You know, all of these firms were awarded contracts worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I feel grateful that the, the, the National Audit Office, which is the independent spending watchdog, that it's, uh, it's really, um, yeah, drawn a spotlight on all these deals. And some of the equipment is simply unusable now, isn't it? I mean, the, the scale of equipment, which is either unusable because it's past its expiry date, mm because it's been sitting in these warehouses, which ask questions of the, the management of the stock, which, as you say, was part of the NAO's role in this report. You've got equipment that, as I say, has expired, but other equipment that, that was just never fit for purpose in the first place, some of it coming through, or a significant amount of it coming through that, that VIP line, but, but equipment for which presumably the taxpayer is still on the hook. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um I mean, there's so many different aspects to this. So we've got 1.5 billion billion items of PPE that's entirely unusable because it's past its expiry date. Um, we've then got roughly 2 billion items that will expire within the next six months. Um, and then we've got, so we've got 30,000 containers of PPE um, and a thousand of these containers, the government simply hasn't checked the equipment yet so we could have vast amounts of ppe still that's unusable um but the government simply can't sift through all the all the equipment that it's that it's ordered and this is the thing that the claim from the government is that we did everything we could to protect frontline health workers but if you if you read previous reports by the by the national audit office it says that in actual fact it was local um enterprise from from local NHS hospitals that got the equipment to the front line, the vast majority of the equipment the equipment that was ordered by Matt Hancock's department hadn't arrived by November two thousand and twenty, and we all remember that the the peak of this PPE crisis in terms of the way it was uh, affecting those on the front line was sort of April May June of two thousand and twenty. 
But the NAO says that all this equipment that we spent billions of pounds on actually arrived months after that. And the department's claiming that it managed to solve the problem when in actual fact it was it was the ingenuity of doctors and nurses and local NHS hospitals that, that managed to that managed to get the equipment in time. The VIP channel wasn't just open to friends and associates of MPs. It was also open to uh, associates of the House of Lords, to senior NHS staff, to senior civil servants Mm. as well. So, again, we we shouldn't give the impression that it was just mates of ministers. Mm. However, one of the key strands of the Byline Times investigations over many months into this has been the, the extent to which people who were donors to the Conservative Party were also suppliers approved through this VIP line. Yeah, so we've calculated, um, which is a figure that's been um, taken up by the Labour Party, so we've made a political difference in this regard. Uh, we calculated that three, at least £3 billion worth, I think Labour's taken up to £3.5 billion now, three, three, £3.5 billion worth of, of contracts, not just PPE, but um, you know, test and trace contracts, consultancy contracts, that sort of thing, uh, have been awarded to, to donors and associates of the Conservative Party during the pandemic. And um, I have to note the fact that when we were sifting through our records and the list of contracts, we were really diligent about making sure that we had a strict criteria um, for defining firms that had close connections to the Conservative Party. So any sort of shred of doubt that they had, that they had a connection, we removed them from our list. We weren't trying to expand beyond uh, the realms of what the story could actually provide. So we were, you know, even on even on a conservative figure, we got three billion quid worth of, of contracts awarded to to Tory mates and donors, which is which is a, a vast amount of money um, during the pandemic. And you know, some of which we've seen now. I mean, we've seen the records. Um, I'd encourage people listening to go and look at our our story from a month or two back about Randox. Um, which were which didn't wasn't referred through the VIP lane. Have to say it's a big healthcare firm, but the fact is that you can see in black and white the messages that were sent between Owen Patterson, who worked for Randox, and the health secretary at the time, Matt Hancock, where Patterson was imploring Hancock to consider using Randox for contracts during the early stages of the pandemic, and that's a clear con- conflict of interest of a Conservative MP working for a healthcare firm imploring the health secretary to use that very healthcare firm for the provision of equipment. And again, the defence is, well, we needed tests. You know, we nobody was getting tested. We were falling behind everywhere else in the world and we had to uh, act quickly. But the fact is that in the process of acting quickly, the rules were, the, the rules were bent. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for, for us all to ask exactly how and whether we want those rules to be bent in, in a future crisis in the same way. One of the great tragedies, and you've hinted at this already, was the failure to get much of this PPE to the front line. This isn't an abstract theoretical issue or even just a financial one. We're talking about doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals who were unable to get the protection they needed when the pandemic was at its height. Yeah, exactly. And we all remember the stories of desperate doctors having to use sort of bin bags as as masks. And um, I mean, there were there were complaints for months and months. I was looking back yesterday and there were complaints 
you know, 50% of doctors um, in in August 2020 saying that they, they didn't have the sufficient equipment um, uh, to work on the front line. Um, it was it was truly a national scandal. And I think it's worth reversing a little a little bit as well. Um, so this was, I think, largely the crisis was, aside from the contracts themselves, I think the crisis was really stoked by the fact that over a period of many years, largely th- thanks to central government austerity, the stockpile of PPE in the UK had diminished significantly. So when a pandemic hit, we couldn't rely on stuff that was sat in warehouses. And in actual fact, a lot of, a lot of the equipment that we had had expired uh, when we came to check the equipment, which we hadn't done for ages, apparently. Um, a lot of it had, had gone past its expiry date, so we, we rapidly needed to commission equipment. There was also uh, previous NAO reports spell this out uh, in quite graphic detail. There was uh, a real reluctance on the part of ministers and civil servants to act quickly when they had warnings about potential shortages. So uh, I I watched some testimony last year from a a massive PPE supplier. They supplied £3 billion worth of equipment ultimately to the government. And um, the CEO was, was saying that they warned the government in December 2019 so several months before we went into lockdown, she warned the government that um, China was basically keeping all the PPE for itself, uh, as it would do, um, and that we were going to see we were going to see shortages. And yet, and yet, it wasn't until April two thousand and twenty, so five months later, that her firm was given the go ahead to start shipping equipment over the over to the UK. The NAO says that um, officials thought that it could cope through the existing procurement mechanisms of the NHS and the Department of Health. And in actual fact, we got to early April and we realised that, oh God, the wheels are falling off the bus. We don't have nearly enough equipment. Healthcare workers are dying. And therefore, they put in place these rushed procurement mechanisms that essentially, uh, that that failed in their own right, but um, that funnelled billions of pounds worth of contracts towards uh, mates and donors and uh, contracts that just didn't deliver the goods in in sheer desperation. Yeah, I was going to say, if you are listening live on Byline Radio and you want to join in, maybe you were one of those frontline healthcare professionals and you were affected by a shortage of PPE, very happy to hear from you. If you are on your phone, there's a little microphone icon in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Just tap that to request access and we'll allow you into our conversation. Be good to hear from you, or if you've just got a general comment to make or a question to ask of Sam or I. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio, either live via Twitter Spaces or on catch-up via the Byline Times podcast. Our work is supported by your subscriptions to the Byline Times, a fabulous monthly newspaper. Just go over to our website at bylinetimes.com to find out how you can subscribe. We are free and fearless in our reporting. So as I say, check out more, find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And this lack of uh, preparation, lack of provision of PPE right at the start of the pandemic, Sam, 
touches on two things which I think are very important. One is Britain's poor emergency planning, the fact that there had been exercises anticipating some kind of unspecified emergency, but the lessons of that had not been learned. And the desire right at the start of the pandemic to consider the the idea of herd immunity and mm. although government has sought to downplay that now there seems little doubt that in those early weeks when other countries were really starting to dig in and get prepared for what was coming our government was still allowing the Cheltenham Racing Festival to go ahead it was allowing Liverpool to host supporters from Atletico Madrid even though that city in Spain was itself already in lockdown it, there was a there was a whole series of mismanagement prior to the pandemic really taking hold which meant that when you add in the poor provision of PPE, we, we, you know, it's one of the reasons why we have one of the, sadly, one of the highest death rates in, in Europe from coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Um, and not forgetting that Boris Johnson was saying that he went through a COVID ward and shook everyone's hands and was encouraging us all to do the same. Um, this is, so essentially, this came from right at the top of government. This, I think, this idea that. Um, that, that we could trick the virus somehow, that we could be smarter, that we that we didn't have to lock down, we could keep the economy open and everything would be fine. Um, and the fact is that you can't trick a pandemic. It kills thousands of people if you try and do that. And um, there, was a, there was a famous um, episode of Question Time, I think I'm right in saying in February 2020, but it could have been earlier, it could have been January, where John Ashton, who's a former regional uh, public health official who's written for Byline Times extensively, warned the government and said, you have to act now. You have to start getting in place your plans for locking down, for testing. You know, this thing is going to hit us. And when it does, it'll hit us hard. And um, I mean, clearly the government didn't listen to him. Um, and I think this is this is you know one of the one of the great failures which has been mentioned many times is the lack of um, appreciation for regional health experts who are actually seen um, diseases take hold in local communities and um, know how to deal with it. Instead, the government decided to rely on the private sector heavily and basically outsourced our response to, to the pandemic and um yeah we all know we all know the consequences of that which uh you know hun- uh, you know 150 160,000 people dead and um billions of pounds um spent on those services which uh, doesn't seem a pre- doesn't seem a good return on, on investment to me i think we lost adrian i'm not sure why <laughs> kathy Kathy, I can I can see you're ready to chip in there. Adrian's gone for his lunch. Sorry, Kathy, I, I made my um. I, I try and switch off my mic when I'm not speaking because it, it can sometimes interrupt. Uh, however, I sometimes forget to switch it on, so I was in full flow there. <laughs> Nobody could hear me. So, uh, no, like, I'll let I'll let you come in in a second, Kathy. Very well handled, Sam. If I may say. I'll let uh, I'll let you speak in a moment, Cathy. I was just making the point, Sam. You know, we we need to be aware. You know, again, in fairness, the UK does not have the highest death rate of uh, any European country, but it is worse than what you might call comparable industrialised nations. So our, our death rate is below that of Italy and Belgium. However, it is above France, Spain. 
Portugal, even Sweden, which had a, a much laxer attitude towards coronavirus ultimately than we did. We have a higher death rate than the Netherlands, than Germany, I mean, significantly higher than both Netherlands and Germany. So although Boris Johnson likes to talk up the world-beating vaccination programme, and, and I think the government can take credit for the vaccination, the, both the development of the vaccination and the, the rollout of the programme, it, it, it hasn't prevented us from having a higher death rate than many, many comparable nations. Exactly. I think the government's approach has always been to lock down too late and to come out of lockdown too soon to have a very dismissive attitude about relatively uh, unintrusive public health measures such as masks. Um, and we've um, and, and it's not learned from those failures. That's the thing. It's been really dogmatic. I mean, one of the things that Dominic Cummins said in his testimony was, which I found most shocking, was that Boris Johnson was even more determined to support a herd, immun a herd immunity approach in the autumn of 2020, after he himself had had COVID and seen tens of thousands of people die, um, even despite lockdown, that he thought that herd immunity was the way to go, which I just find staggering how you can be presented with such a wealth of evidence and yet still... And, and yet want the, the bodies to pile high. It just it seems to be a complete, if, if anything, a complete dereliction of duty of the Prime Minister, which in the first instance should be to protect his citizens. Yeah, let, let the bodies pile high reference to a, a phrase which Dominic Cummings claims Boris Johnson once made, a claim which Johnson himself has always denied. Let's get a, a few of our callers in now. Uh, Cathy, thank you very much indeed for your patience. What, what do you want to say, Cathy? Um, I just wanted to, uh, hi guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to um, pick up on something that um, I heard when I when I started listening. Really, Sam was um, mentioning the amount of money uh, that you totted up through sort of like donors and and um, through you know cronies and that kind of thing. And am I right in saying that your totals came to something like three and a half billion? Was that did I hear you right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I mean, something that really sort of like captured me um, in your reporting and everything was the astonishing $2.2 billion, I think it was, attributed to the network of Plymouth Brethren. I just find that, you know, that the, the church um, of, of, of businesses connected to the church that you reported on. I find that absolutely staggering. 2.2 billion of three and a half is to a network of businesses involving Plymouth Brethren. Where's that going? Yeah, the Plymouth Brethren's a very, in fact, I think it calls itself the uh, exclusive Brethren. So it's That's essentially right. a sect, uh, yeah, a, a quite radical cult. Um, whereby it preaches separation between members of the brethren and uh, the non-brethren community. Um, and in fact, I don't think, Kathy, I don't think that we even took the brethren into account when we had when we put together our three billion figure, um, oh, because okay. its connections to the Conservative Party are quite are quite loose. Um, so that's even in addition to the three billion to uh, Tory donors and associates. Yeah. Um, you know the further money um, uh, linked to the to, to the exclusive brethren, but it's it's it is a really interesting case and one that plenty of people have 
have um, tapped into in, into the in, in the past the case of, of the brethren. Sure. Um, yeah, I remember they had a history. I think it was 2015, and and before that, even with um, sort of like supporting the the Tory party <clears throat> in mm. their um, endeavours of election, <laughs> and something to do with um, money spent on on the leaflet. You know the the mm. um, the hung parliament leaflet that there was a big kerfuffle about. So, you know, I mean, there's definitely sort of like strong connections there, but um, it's just, I find it fascinating. It's yeah, really well, I mean, Cathy, as Sam was saying, you know, in, in a sense, in his writing, uh, Byline Times was sort of erring on the side of caution. You know, if, if there was any doubt, we wouldn't listen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I get it. Connected with the party. But, but just look at, I mean, I'm quoting now from Sam's article here. Multi-million pound PPE deals were awarded to a hotel carpeting company, a naval design firm, a Florida fashion designer, a four-month-old DNA analysis firm, a one-year-old micro firm, a small luxury packaging company. Don't forget the eyebrow company. (laughs) I mean, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. Yeah, by all means, by all means, uh, continue to join in. Let's bring in Tim Ashby, who's got a comment as well. Hello, Tim. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hello. I hope everyone's okay. Yeah, nice to speak to you, mate. Yeah, I've been enjoying listening. Um, one of the things that I am very annoyed about is the money blown on track and trace. I've seen on social media people posting that Germany had a very successful track and trace system that didn't even cost the equivalent of a billion pounds and we've spaffed away 37 billion where's that money gone actually does anybody know sam do you want to pick up on that yeah definitely um so outsourcing was a very significant component as we all know um at one stage in fact throughout the the process when we were testing really heavily um, we were employing 2,000 management consultants a day on uh, test and trace. Um, and they were costing us £1,000 a head. So if you do those, if you do that maths, um, it's 2 million quid a day. We were, we were forking out on management consultants from, you know, some of the giants like uh, Deloitte, for example, I think contributed heavily. Um, so they ex- they essentially acted as a surrogate for the civil service um, during the pandemic. They were essentially the civil service of, of test and trace, um, the foot soldiers implementing um, implementing the scheme. And um, they were very, they were extremely expensive because management consultants are, especially from the biggest and best firms. Um, it's I think it's ironic as well that you know quite quite a number of people associated with test and trace were formerly management consultants. Um, for example, uh, Dido Harding were, used to work for uh, McKinsey, which was another one of the firms that was commissioned quite extensively to work on test and trace. And, you know, I, there's, I don't think there's any evidence um, that we've seen that, you know, she she um, she called up her former mates at McKinsey and asked them to, to help out or whatever. Um, but I think to some extent, I saw... Um, a few of my colleagues reporting last week, I think it was Ian Overton of the Balan Intelligence team, that it's very difficult um, to access um, the records of Dido Harding's emails. Um, so because she she wasn't contracted um, 
you know, in, in any direct sense. I think she, she worked for free. She was a volunteer. Uh, the government has managed to get around um, certain freedom of information requirements to release um, the correspondence of Dido Harding. So the person who was essentially in charge of this vast budget, um, as we all know, a £37 billion two-year budget for Test and Trace, um, we actually know relatively little about um, how she was communicating with whom, with what firms, uh, what processes were put in place to prevent vast overspending and waste, etc. Which I think is one of the one of the holes that lots of people will want to be plugged through a public inquiry whenever that um, whenever that comes along. Yeah, and I mean, Tim, to back up your claim, really uh, about the waste of money here. This goes back to October 2021, and the Public Accounts Committee. This is a cross-party group of MPs did a couple of investigations. This was their second investigation, and they were really damning. They said the National Test and Trace Program was allocated eye-watering sums of taxpayers' money in the midst of a global health and economic crisis. It set out bold ambitions, but as failed to achieve them, despite the vast sums thrown at it. The continued reliance on the overpriced consultants who delivered this state of affairs will by itself cost the taxpayer hundreds of millions of pounds for this huge amount of money. We need to see a legacy system ready to deliver when needed, but it's just not clear what there will be to show in the long term. This legacy has to be a focus for the government if we're to see any value for the money spent. What puzzled many people, Sam, and I'll I'll bring you in again in a moment, Tim, what puzzles many people, uh, Sam, is the fact that the existing NHS and local authority public health infrastructure was overlooked in order to bring in private companies. And in all good faith it is very difficult to see any reason for that other than an ideological an ideological desire to support private healthcare companies or private companies managing healthcare systems over and above public healthcare systems yeah i think a couple of points one is that Again, or I, I'm not necessarily sure it was like overt that it was an overt policy from the government to say, you know, we're going to plough uh, taxpayer cash into the pockets of these private consultancies. I think it's more the case that a lot of the people who operate the controls of power um, know of know of people who work in private consultancies. Um, they're some of their best mates, and they'll have known plenty of people who've gone through the Oxford PPE system, who's then gone on to work and found very high-flying jobs in the likes of Deloitte and McKinsey, etc. And so that's just a natural recourse for them. It's sort of a, a, tri- a trigger reaction when a crisis happens. They, they, they reach for the, for the familiar, which is um, the private sector and these huge management consultants. They reach for the phone book and the people who they know and trust. Did, did, you, mention the the pe- Ox- did you mention the Oxbridge PPE system? No, as in, as in, the, you, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 were you talking about the uh, the degree that so many of these top politicians have? Uh, well, exactly, exactly, exactly. The yeah. irony, the, the, the irony of PPE. PPE. Yeah, different sort of PPE, <laughs> but um, yeah, exactly, exactly. I haven't, I haven't thought about that before, actually, Adrian. That's quite a nice uh, parallel, isn't it? But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, both. I mean, David, uh, as a way of an example. David Cameron and Dido Harding and Matt Hancock were all were all products of the Oxford PPE system, and then they created, as you say, the PPE crisis. Um, <laughs> second, second one is second point is that 
I think part of the reason they didn't rely on um, local public health initiatives was austerity again, was the fact, and it's something that we've talked about on, on the podcast before, Adrian, isn't it? Is that um, the public health teams at a local level were systematically underfunded for, for you know years prior to the pandemic, which has led to which has unfortunately led to um, vast inequalities of life expectancy in different parts of the country. But it's also meant that public health services at a local level, at a local level, in particularly in deprived areas of the country, simply don't have the resources to deal with day-to-day activities, never mind, you know, a once-in-a-century pandemic. And in a sense, the government created no other option than to, uh, than to outsource because it sim- simply hadn't, put the resources into public health teams for the past uh, for the past decade but it's, Tim, a good, you know, it's a good job they didn't use those same outsourcing when they put the vaccines out they used the local and the tried and tested nhs systems for the vaccines so in reality those systems were in place well enough to deliver the vaccines they surely could have been able to do the track and trace It's an ideological, as you said, Sam, an Mm. ideological reason, nothing to do with what would work best. I suggested ideology. Sam suggested it was a bit more of the the old Powell's network, but Mm. one way or another, there's no question that a lot of money, a lot of taxpayers' money was squandered. I mean, there were talks of these management consultants and in call centres who who had nothing to do but were on really, really significant wages as well. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Druid Granny. Hello, Druid Granny. How are you? Hiya. uh, Boiling mad. PMQs did it for me. So I thought I'd listen to this. (laughs) Two things um, really kind of jumped out at me at the beginning of the pandemic. Firstly, was the way local volunteers got together. In my town, it was amazing. We had a Facebook group. We had people going out shopping. We had people doing all sorts of different things to help each other out. And it worked extremely well. And then three months later, you know, sort of the local councils got their act together when they got the funding through from government. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, on the PPE, has anybody looked at how much um, sewing was done voluntarily to make scrubs? Because scrubs, and it wasn't just face masks and aprons that were short. There was they, they needed scrubs and... So Sussex, I think, was the name of the group locally here. And they arranged with Rolls-Royce, who, and they got hold of a whole load of material. They got it all cut into different sizes, different colours, and people were sewing for months. But you don't hear any kind of thanks, and yet the government was spaffing billions on, yeah, their mates and offshore tax havens. That's my rant. No, it's a fair rant. And, and I mean, the irony here is, Sam, and we've touched on this already, was that so much of this equipment either didn't work or didn't get to the front line in time. So we still had people who were exposed to risk or people having to do these DIY jobs to, to make their own protective equipment. 
Well, yeah, exactly. And that's been the government's defence throughout, is that it did whatever was necessary. And, and the thing is that, yeah, for one, that's not, tr- that's not true. It just, it just didn't. Um, so sh- we should all reject that whenever it's, whenever it's um, you know, touted by current or former, former ministers. And, and the question is, at what cost? At what cost did we do everything necessary? Whatever necessary seemed to involve, you know, if not corruption, then uh, then practices amounting to it or, or on the boundary of it. And it also amounted to vast amounts of public resources being ploughed into this system that didn't produce the goods. I mean, just as a, as a way of comparison, £13 billion is the estimated figure that we will have spent on PPE. The amount that we're expected, the government's expected to earn through the national insurance hike every year is less than that. So £12 billion quid a year uh, the government's expected to make from its national insurance hike. And yet that's less than the amount that we shelled out on um, on PPE. And the National Audit, Audit Office has previously said that we, that we overpaid by a margin of 10 billion quid for this equipment. So essentially, through the amount that we overpaid for the equipment, um, we, we, we could have delayed the national insurance hike for a year, which I think lots of families suffering with their energy bills uh, would be very grateful for at the minute. Um, and so this, this fundamentally matters, not just to what happened during the pandemic, but we'll all be paying it back you know, for, for years, if not decades to come. Some of the abuses in the system or the loopholes in the system that, for example, allowed people on the VIP line or companies on the VIP route to not undergo the strictest vetting. In fairness to the government, those loopholes were closed later on, weren't they? These were, in in some cases anyway, symptoms of the rush to get to get PPE online. Yes, yeah, so um, of the 115 contracts awarded to VIP lane suppliers, 46 um, were awarded without uh, an eight-stage due diligence process, which means that ma- the majority did go through the full uh, due diligence. But uh, I mean, the, I mean, the point the point remains that even after the government did its supposed due diligence, uh, a lot a lot of the contracts um, a lot of the contracts didn't you know didn't didn't deliver. And uh, I've seen previously in one of the former NAO reports the fact that. Um, so there was a there was a company that we all remember now called Ianda Capital. Um, one of its um, board members, I'm sorry, one of its advisors was a member of the government's board of trade. So essentially, this chap worked for the government. He acted as an intermediary for Ianda to win contracts worth in excess of three hundred million pounds. And yet, during the government's due diligence process, no conflict of interest was flagged, which it's just staggering. I don't see how you can call that due diligence when you've got someone representing the company and also working for the government acting as an intermediary. So I think there's got to be serious questions asked. I don't think we can simply say that due diligence was done. And, you know, we, we trust the government to have done it properly when um, when those examples have been have been flagged. I mean, I guess the question for lots of people who are who are angry like I am is what you know, what do we what repercussions will there be? What, how will this affect public discourse, politics, the next election? 
because it's been litigated. Some of these cases have gone through court. It's been uh, decided that the government acted unlawfully. And yet it's only through Partygate that the, that the polls have, have significantly shifted. And even then, Boris Johnson is hanging on to power. So it is, it is I mean, I would urge everybody to keep up the pressure, but it is a quite soul-sapping experience at times, Keep you know, keeping on bashing away and showing the abuses of power, um, but nothing, nothing actually fundamentally changing. Yeah, I'll come back to you for one final comment in a moment, uh, Sam. Before we go, though, Cathy, did you want to have a final word? Hi, yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to ask Sam, um, out of... Um, out of the companies that he's looked at, um, what you were saying about sort of like when you were saying about the Oxbridge PPE and all of that, I know a bit of a joke, but, you know, we are being realistic about this. There are a lot of friends of friends of politicians, etc. Um, I'm just curious about how many of those companies were box fresh. I mean, you know, some of them, I know that some of them were sort of like created in company's house, um, kind of like the week before or... You know, how, how many of them were sort of like set up in that month that PP, everybody knew PP was uh, going to be on the cards? I have to say there's not there's not a tremendous overlap between the firms that were linked to conservative donors and those that were set up spontaneously at the start of the pandemic. There's a sort of two separate issues. There were lots of firms that were set up box fresh yeah. And somehow either made it through the VIP route through through ways that we're not quite sure, you know, how they managed it, yeah. or the government opted for them for one reason or another. And then there's separately um, quite long established firms with links to the Conservative Party, you know, in some cases that had previously worked in other fields. Um, yeah. So had worked in, for example, supplying fashion um you know uh, fashion clothing that were then tapped up by ministers and applied their trades to ppe um but not my, not many of those tory donors because essentially the company needed enough money to to donate to the conservative party in the first place for us to then say this is a this is a firm with links to the conservative party that's won a contract whereas if it's a box fresh firm it simply you know it doesn't have the resources or you know the time with which to donate to the conservative party um at the start of the pandemic and then win a contract um sure. so they're kind of two you know the the two very separate but, please. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. Kathy, great to hear from you thank you uh, Sam my final question for you is I mentioned right at the start that this was the the story that is the gift that keeps on giving do you think there is yet more to discover two years on in terms of scandal outrage misspending all of the above <laughs> related yeah yeah I mean, there's been a fair amount, hasn't there? It's um, difficult to know what else we might we might see. I mean, for example, we know the individuals that referred VIP lane companies to that particular channel now, and we sort of mined uh, the information there to see how egregious uh, those referrals were. So I doubt there's going to be a tremendous amount more there. Of course, the, the Good Law Project is continuing to litigate um, not just PPE contracts, but uh, testing contracts and other public appointments during the pandemic. So we might yet see another couple of um, 
high court decisions that show that the government acted unlawfully. Um, though we've seen a couple already, and um, you know that hasn't changed much. Um, the public inquiry, I think, will hopefully just put all this together. Like I say, we've we've talked in in this fifty minutes about a whole range of things that that really, when you lay it out in its full glory, it's pretty staggering and appalling. And I hope that's the one thing that the public inquiry will do is knit together this information that. Um, they're not, you know, the, even I can't, you know, knit together in my mind into a full, uh, it could be a book, you know, into a full uh, manual of information. And hopefully the public inquiry will do that and lay the facts bare. But um, we don't have a date yet, do we? For the but we don't have a date. Exactly, we don't have a date. Yeah. It's like I it's going to be next year. year. I remember last year talking about this and people telling me, uh, various government departments suggesting to me that the uh, public inquiry would start in 2022 around March time. Well, here we are, nearly April, and uh, no public inquiry yet. So we shall see when that emerges. Sam, thank you very much indeed. Thanks to Cathy, to Tim, to Drewy Granny, who took taken part in the programme. Thank you to everybody for listening as well. Really appreciate it. And please spread the word about at Byline Radio on Twitter and at Byline Times Podcast, where many people listen on catch-up. And just to remind you as well, if you want to support what we're doing in presenting free and fearless radio and journalism, please do subscribe to the Byline Times. Get details at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed, everybody. We'll see you soon. Ta-da!